Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Y'all, this week I have a conversation for you that I had with Monique Fairchild. Monique is a licensed veterinary technician, and she's also a veterinary technician specialist in behavior. One of her special interest areas is cooperative veterinary care. And we sat down to talk about what cooperative veterinary care is, what it looks like in a clinic setting, how we can best support everybody in a veterinary care environment, and I found this conversation so exciting and so interesting that you can bet that I will have Monique back to talk about more. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Will you get started by sharing your name and pronouns, please? My name is Monique Fairchild and my pronouns are she, her. Welcome, Monique. I'm really excited about this because uh, cooperative care, I, I mean, man, I've been on like a saga of this for the last seven or eight years myself. And I know it's a special, it is an expertise area for you. And so will you actually start by defining cooperative veterinary care? I will give you my definition for cooperative veterinary yes. care, <laughs> which is patient-centered care that allows for room to consider the emotional health of the animal and not just their physical health. Oh, I like this. Say it again, please. (laughs) (laughs) Patient-centered care that allows room for us to consider the emotional health of the animal and not just their physical health. Okay, I love this. So right out the gate, this is a this is a different definition than I think I've heard before. And I think sometimes when we think about cooperative care, we think about a lot of fancy trained behaviors. That's what we think about. And I love bringing it back to the actual motive, which is this patient-centered care and this allowing for the care of the emotions of this animal and not just their body. For sure. And I mean, coming from veterinary background, for me, it is, it's a big deal to tell veterinary professionals that it's okay to make room for emotional wellness. That's a big deal. So yeah. And something that, you know, I, I have so much sympathy for everybody that works in vet med. I mean, now more than ever, like I always have, but now more than ever. And I do feel that There isn't a person working in vet med that doesn't care about the emotions of the animals. But when you are so pressed for, especially on the technician or the nurse kind of side of things, so pressed for time, so kind of pressured by different motivations, right? It's, I love that kind of allowing, like opening the door and saying, actually, I do want you to consider the emotional health. I'm not only here for the dog's physical health. For sure. And it's not just time. It's also what we're taught. Like what we have been taught for many years in tech school and vet school is how to handle animals in a way that the animal can't physically injure you. Period. End of statement. That's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And And so that the animal doesn't injure the veterinarian. Correct. Right? Yeah. Yes. And so it's rough because we have, especially if people have had some longevity in the field, there is 
this sort of hardening of your heart that happens where you do bad to do good. And so we learn all of these really elaborate restraint and handling techniques so that we can prevent human injury and do good for the physical health of the animal, but not necessarily giving ourselves some time to take into account their emotional welfare. And partially it's like you say, because time pressure is really strong, but also just because we were never taught that that was important until recent years. Like this is a recent change for sure. As well as I want to come back to that thing you said about hardening the heart a little bit, because I have thought about this a lot that I don't know how I could work in that field without just being so sad about it. So sad about having to restrain a dog that is really upset, really scared, right? Pushing a dog who is panicking into a procedure. I think that it's a survival mechanism on the part of the staff because you didn't get into this because you don't care about them. 100%. Absolutely. You know, the hardest thing that a client can say to me is I could never do your job because I like animals too much. You're like, and, hey now. <laughs> hey now. <laughs> well, yeah, and it, I, you get that little hey now, but that little hey now is just another little piece from inside the armor ticking, knocking on the inside of my hard little heart say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm still in here. I still do care. And if we take that apart and actually look at it and think, what do I do that makes a client think that I don't like animals? A lot of it is handling. And a lot of it is the emotional welfare of the pet because clients bring us pets because they love their animals, right? And they have this strong emotional connection with their pet. And if they have the sense that coming in for veterinary care will cause emotional distress for the animal, then it causes emotional distress for the person as well. And then nobody is their best self and everybody is stressed and it's rough. And so, you know, my goal in educating veterinary professionals and pet owners and trainers is just encouraging people to open that up a little bit. Like, it's okay. It's okay to feel Mm -hmm. and then to be curious about what you're feeling. Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel distressed about the thing that I'm doing? And maybe that feeling of distress is a signal that there could be another way to do whatever that thing is. And that's where cooperative care comes in. Can I put allow for more than one point of view about how this needs to look? Monique, you are honestly already, we just got started. I have chills all over my body because oh. you're really, you're talking about my experiences. You're talking about, I've trained my dogs for a lot of cooperative procedures over the, over the years. I, it causes me a level of distress that is not healthy or fair to see my dogs in even minor discomfort. <laughs> oh, 100%, 100%, absolutely. I, I have a new puppy and he was running around in the yard and he like stepped on something and shrieks and is on three legs and I'm having a heart attack. And of course, in four, in four seconds, he's fine. He had a tiny little stick stuck to his foot, but I'm dying. So yes, 100% I know. agree. It is, it is such a thing, but... But I love that you're saying, hey, you know, that feeling is okay. That feeling is coming from somewhere. And maybe we can, I love that, have different viewpoints about how this might look and how this is going to go. So let's talk a little bit about the viewpoint of the veterinary team. What is fair for us to ask of our team? And obviously that's not going to be a concise answer. That's not like a one size, there isn't a one size fits all answer. 
but we I think we already ask a lot of them so what what is fair for us so, to do as far as our cooperative trained behaviors and, and things like that yeah let me refine your question or make sure that I fully understand it because when ah. you say what is fair for we to ask can you say more about who we is is it trainers yes. is it the pet owner what's that perspective I love it so I'm thinking of myself as a pet owner who has done my best to prepare my dog for what the vet team is going to do. I sometimes run into, um, I certainly sometimes run into just very strong opinions about actually, no, we're not going to do any of that stuff <laughs> because yes, it's not sure. safe for us or, or et cetera. And a lot of, and I think I'm pretty good at it. And I think I'm just very lucky that I have good relationships with the veterinarians that I need in general, most of the time. But let's say from the point of view of maybe my client who, you know, is going to walk into perhaps a new vet clinic and say, well, my dog is trained to have vaccines without restraint. And I fully understand that from the point of view of the vet team, their, their number one is keeping everybody safe. And so what, what even can we do? What should we be doing? I mean, just jam on that a little bit. Okay. You just turned me loose. So beware. This, this can happen. <laughs> You've unleashed Monique. <laughs> We've unleashed Monique. Yeah, this is happening. So there are a number of different contexts that would influence the answer to your question about what it's appropriate for a pet owner to ask a veterinary team to do. And it depends a little bit on, is this a preventive situation? Is this a meet the new vet scenario? Is it a wellness? Or is there some kind of urgent situation? And I really think it's better for us to maybe focus on the wellness piece first, because hopefully most of the time we spend at the vet has to do with that. So like, let's yes, do that circle back to, We are going to come around to urgent oh, yeah. situations and well, We'll come around so to the trauma for everyone yeah, later. Let's I'm sure. talk wellness yes. first. <laughs> so wellness, it depends a little bit on how sophisticated the training is that the client has done with their pet, first of all, because sometimes, and I say this as someone who is both a client and a veterinary professional, and I think a pretty darn proficient trainer, um, sometimes clients overestimate the level of training that their animal has, particularly Absolutely. under a given condition. So they will have behaviors that look lovely, but are not actually fluent. They aren't actually generalized to a variety of different conditions. And they haven't had the opportunity to test that. So in fairness to the client, the client doesn't actually know that that's true. Like the pet owner does not know that their animal is not fluent. And there are a few great ways for them to find that out, which is tested under the condition. So one of the first asks that I suggest for clients to the veterinary team is, can I schedule an appointment to meet the vet and do a checkup? And while I'm there, can I show you what my animal can do? So instead of, can you give vaccines and while my animal stands here on a target, it's, can right. I show you this? Right. And can, we, and can we work together? Make it about cooperating, not just the people and the pet, but also people with each other. So that's, that's how my I first big started, question. Yeah. Well, that's how I started out. Basically, when I have a new vet, I try to have a brief email exchange with them first. To just, you know, certainly y'all, because I know I know how this feels. Do not send somebody a novel who you've never met. Please and don't do that. <laughs> just a really brief email exchange first. I have actually shared video of my dog. 100%. Skills, totally um, agree with via, that. Via email before. And then I'm always open to, and just a, just a hint for everybody, this is true of all training across the board. I'm always open to being shown by my dog that I was wrong about what they know. 
hundred percent. And then having a backup plan and a pivot plan available, which is why it's so wonderful to do this first when nothing actually needs to be done today. Exactly. Because if there, if we have pressure and we feel like there are things that need to be done today, mm-hmm. uh, we will not be our best training self as a no. pet owner. And we will not be our best client to the veterinarian because the veterinarian is also going to feel like, hey, there are things we need to do today. And then all of a sudden the clock is ticking. Like we have X number of minutes to complete this appointment in timely fashion. Everyone shows up with an agenda and that's not a great way to set up a training session. So I really encourage clients to think of their first visit really as just an exploratory training session. And we're asking each other as humans questions. And then we're asking the animal the questions of, are you ready? And what do you have for me today? Just like any good training session. Absolutely. And I think that's really fair to ask. You're still going to get no sometimes. And I think that that's also fair and fine. And maybe you choose to keep looking, keep looking for your veterinary team when you get that, that no. I want to hear your thoughts briefly on, I mean, or not briefly. You just said brief. (laughs) Uh Oh, okay. I'm ready. I want to hear your thoughts on how we as pet owners can be smart about truly preparing our dogs. You talked about that fluency. I think there's a lot of just good training that needs to be involved, but there's a piece in cooperative care that I certainly learned the hard way that you being in the veterinary field would would know, which is you need to know what this procedure truly looks like in clinic to teach it to your dog rather than I do find a lot of times in cooperative care training folks are trying to go off of maybe what they saw a zookeeper do in a video etc come to find out a jugular blood draw is not done through a chain link fence in real life but some dogs are hyenas in real life just saying absolutely true And, you know, come to find out this is done with somebody restraining from behind most of the time. And it actually really changes the picture for the person using the needle when the pressure is not coming from behind the neck. I mean, this is the procedure that I had that slap in the face with, that my dog can hold his head up on a target for a year. But the team actually needed the pressure behind his neck to get the blood accurately, essentially. So talk a little bit about how, how are we supposed to know what it's going to look like? Well, there are a few different ways that you can know what it's going to look like. The best way, probably once you've established a relationship with a team, like once you've picked out a vet and Mm -hmm. picked out a vet team is to ask them Yeah, because different veterinary teams have different preferences for which veins they like to use for blood draws and where they like to give vaccines and what room they do an ultrasound in and all of these things. The more information that you have about the requirements, the more successful you'll be with training, right? So you need information. The difficulty with that is going to be most veterinary teams are not trainers and they Mm -hmm. do not know how to split. They will know how to describe the thing that they need to do, but they will not know how to split it down into training increments. And if people really want to up their game, I will tell you that there's nothing like consulting with someone who actually knows before you go to the vet's office. And that is not a commercial in any fashion. It is just, there are lots of people around who can help with this kind of stuff. And if people have questions like, 
ask your vet team. And if you're not sure about the answer, consult with someone who has the appropriate background to actually help you know the steps. So for instance, the example that you gave was pressure on the back of the neck for a jugular blood draw. The reason that we need that is we need to occlude the vein. So, you know, when you go and get your blood drawn, they put a little tourniquet around your arm. Exactly. And that, and that puts pressure on the vein so that it will stand up and there's enough pressure for us to put a needle in and blood will come in the correct direction, hopefully, and yes. land in our collection tubes. If there's not counter pressure there provided either by a finger or a tourniquet, we will not be able to get blood. And those little tiny splits yep. really influence the animal's ability to perform the behaviors. And if we have pet owners who are training for these things and they don't know all the small splits, we're setting them up for failure. And that feels really bad to me. Like, I want people to be succeed. I want them to have a great time. I want their animal to succeed. I want veterinary teams to believe that this stuff actually works. And if they are prevent, presented with underprepared pet owner trainers over and over and over again, that's also going to really influence their ability to believe that these things can work. Really? And, yeah. Yeah. And so then we get into this sort of downward spiral where everybody is just on the nope train and it's not good. <laughs> so, so if we give the example of a blood draw, from the neck, for instance, like you said, we need to have an animal that's able to sit. They need to be able to elevate their chin. They need to be able to sit with a stranger probably behind them, ah. helping to put a little bit of pressure on the back of the neck so that they're stable. And then there's gonna be a, another stranger in front of them, probably at eye level, yeah. squatting or sitting on the ground and manipulating their neck and pressing and applying duration pressure, like pressure for quite some time with one hand, while they feel the neck with the other hand. And let me tell you, one hand is petting and two hands is bedding. I tell clients this all the time. <laughs> and, when, and when people are training at home on their own, they have one hand they're using to touch the pet and one hand for treats. It is the single most common mistake, or I shouldn't totally. say it's a mistake. It's the single most common motor pattern that I correct when I'm working with clients because they have one hand on a clicker or one hand for treats and one hand for touching the animal. And so they'll have, for instance, they're training for their blood draw and the animal gives their leg and that's great. Or the animal is sitting and presenting their neck beautifully. And they have one hand on the syringe and one hand on the button, the clicker ready to click. But that in no way replicates what a blood draw actually feels like tactile-wise from the animal's mm -hmm. perspective, social pressure-wise from the animal's perspective. They're well, gonna be we, know, yeah. we know how good they are at picking up those really subtle differences. Absolutely. Right? Suddenly, suddenly there's two hands on me and this is completely different. Yeah. And it's predictive. It's not just different. Oh, it's, it's now there's two hands and now I know I'm getting poked and now I, 100%. right. I, yeah, exactly. Oh boy. So I'm sorry. Are you singing my song, which is that good clean training procedures where you don't need to have your hand on your food when you mark and you need to decide that your marker signal is going to work for you in this procedure <laughs> applies. Is that what you're saying? I, you know, I'm singing, I'm singing one of your songs, but I also may be singing your anti-anthem, which is Please. that messy training is actually really helpful for cooperative care and please say more about I'm, that. I'm really that? sorry <laughs> no I love it please but say more what I need animals to be ready for and to be tolerant to and to be resilient to is variety no two people are going to draw blood mm -hmm. the same way no two people are going to give an injection the same way there may be a barking dog in the other room like things are going to be different and in almost every other training situation precision on the part of the person who's providing the cues and precision on the part of the person who's setting up the antecedents wow. is helpful and important. 
if we are too precise, who knew this was even a thing? If we are too precise in our training, we will narrow down the window of understanding for that animal so small that they are not able to perform the behaviors that are needed or to tolerate or be resilient to the treatments that are needed uh, because what we need from them is variety. And it's rough because, uh, you know, sometimes people who are super awesome, amazing precision trainers will watch some of my videos and then I'll get like a snarkogram about how I'm so sloppy. I'm like, oh yeah, so let's talk about that because interesting, I would love to walk with you, walk through this with you because it's on purpose. I'm putting my hand in a different place intentionally every time. I'm doing this in a slightly different body position every time. And there are reasons why I intentionally install so much variety in the handling that I do when I train for this, because I'm trying to better prepare the animal mentally and emotionally for what it's actually going to look like. So I'm going to circle back and say that that is when you get to a point where you are making things different every single time on purpose you aren't being sloppy you're being intentional and it may not look as sexy as the like beautiful robotic training that we sometimes see but if it's on purpose then we are still being really accurate really smart and it's kind of like this is something that I point out to people in behavior all the time. You know, I'll, I'll get a client who's like lamenting that, you know, their neighbor, Joe dog owner, just lets his, you know, whatever oodle sort of wonderful creature that he bought be whatever and ju- and run up to everybody and run up to everybody's dog and the dog is fine and he never gets hurt and he also <laughs> you know is is perfectly social and lovely and i'm going a lot of that's probably genetics but also i don't know if you've noticed but sometimes we make things worse by trying to make everything perfect Agreed. when the world isn't perfect which is one of the reasons that one of the primary things that I train and ask my clients to train is restraint. It's not all just awesome body part presentations and open your mouth and hold still while I place an otoscope in your ear. And can you stand quietly for vaccines and this kind of thing? It's also, can you allow all of the typical restraint positions that are taught in vet tech school and in veterinary school? Can you be confined? And if you can't, I would love to know that before I take you to the vet. Yeah. And Monique, so this is where I'm at now with cooperative care. And I've, like I've said, I've been on an odyssey. Yes. Where I'm at now is that most of my energy is spent preparing my dogs for restraint and unexpected weird things rather than training them really slick hands-free blood draws and stuff like that. They can do restraint-free, some restraint-free procedures like vaccines, and I'm really happy if they can, but most of my energy is now spent in helping them to be comfortable, as comfortable as they can be, with being restrained and having uncomfortable things be done to them. Certainly. And that's the piece where I think there's a huge divergence in what people consider cooperative care and what people don't. Mm-hmm. I agree completely, which is why I asked you for that definition up top, 
to know kind of what you and I are talking about today, because teaching my dog that restraint will happen and that it might happen in ways that they didn't necessarily know about or didn't necessarily expect. And I'm not actually asking them to do a thing. I'm not asking them to engage their body and do a thing on purpose. I'm basically asking them to be passive. Yes. I'm asking for that passive behavior. It feels different than training like a sustained nose target with our head up for a (laughs) jugular blood draw, but it feels now where I'm at in my odyssey now is it feels more important and it feels like where I need to spend my time. So you keep saying this really interesting thing, sir, which is it feels, it feels, it feels, it feels. Mm -hmm. I love that because you know whose feelings matter, the dog or the cat or whatever kind of animal you're working with. And all of the training that you just talked about and all of the things that I just said about restraint and variety is all about feelings. It's a hundred percent about how they feel in that moment. Can I make this feel okay to you is the question that I'm asking when I'm training those behaviors. It's not, can I make you feel elated about it? Can I make you try really hard to do it? Yeah. Like, can I make, can, can I make you feel anticipation? Can I make you feel joy? Can I make you feel all these things that we try and prompt on a regular basis and other kinds of training? It's, can I make this feel okay? That's my job is to manage the feelings, manage the emotional state, manage the arousal level of that animal while they're in my care and also establish what's the stopping point. What is, what is the level of not okay that I am able to accept? This is really, really important, this stopping point, because I think consent is kind of a buzzword in training right now. And I think it's really important, but I think it's tough for people to wrap their head around around in a lot of scenarios. And then when it comes to this stuff, especially when we're not talking about a fancy trained behavior with a lot of anticipation, we're talking about be passive for me, be passive and you will be all right. And you know, you will be safe. You aren't going to love it, but know that you're safe. When I talk about this, what I tell people is that one of the promises that I make is that I will not push them through panic. But then we have to talk about what panic looks like. And then we have to, (laughs) we have to, if they get into panic, I've already screwed up. So I actually need to be able to anticipate it. Talk about the stopping point. So the stopping point, it's a little bit tricky, right? Because it's subjective. Like every individual that, you know, N equals one for stopping point. Every individual pet and every individual team is going to have different levels of tolerance for what they think is going to be unpleasant and what is okay and what are they ready for and what are they not ready for and what that looks like may be different even on the day. It's also going to be influenced by their underlying medical conditions and that kind of thing, things like pain. All these things are going to influence where our stopping point is on a given day for a given team. It is crucially important that pet owners are accepting of the idea of having a stopping point. It is also crucially important that veterinary teams are okay with having a stopping point. And that's a big conversation to have with the vet team. If you're a trainer helping somebody with your client, with the vet team, this this is not going to be decided on well in the moment, in the thick of it, on the fly. Correct. And that's where things like 
So in the cooperative vet care book, we establish levels is how we do it. So we have level one, level two, level three, they're delineated with body language indicators, and you can actually observe and measure what are these body language indicators. We associate them with a, with a zero moderate or severe level of distress. And then we have guidelines about what treatments are appropriate to proceed with and what treatments are not appropriate to proceed with based on these guidelines, because we're trying to establish for veterinary professionals and also for the pet owners who see this, um, you know, who see the text say, I can actually look at the frequency of these body language indicators and that will tell me what is the probable level of distress and that will help me weigh out, should I continue or should I not? Uh, so that's one way. Uh, the low stress handling people have a different one. Fear free has a, what they call their fear, anxiety, and stress scale, which is also a set of body language indicators that they associate with whether it's appropriate to go or pump the brakes or slam on the brakes and completely stop okay. what we're doing. Uh, I encourage people to observe the body language of their animal and try to have some objective way to measure okay versus not okay because i feel like when we have a close emotional relationship with a pet what the stopping point starts to become is when the person feels emotions of discomfort coming to them from their pet right we've all experienced this this is not an unusual i mean thing. yes yes uh, the difficulty with that is no one outside of your body can have your same interoception, right? No one outside your body knows what your emotional state is. And depending on how good your communication skills are or aren't, when you human being who is in charge of the pet are distressed, yeah. that is going to really change what that picture looks like on that day for that pet. So I encourage people to have some objective indicators. If the animal moves, if I ask the animal two times, is this okay? And they move away from me two times. That's a stopping point for me. Yeah. Me measure it, lay it out. What are the things I'm going to accept? What are the things I'm not going to accept for what procedure under which medical conditions and just be okay. Having a stopping point in our hospital, we have established stopping points that are tr trained to all of our staff. So they know that they have X number of seconds, X level of distress based on X body language signals. And if they see these things, it's a stopping point, whether the owner wants to stop or not, we will stop. Uh, it is life-changing for veterinary teams to be empowered in that way. So, yeah. yeah. So then what happens when we stop? Okay, we stopped. Mm. Now what? Right, now what do we do? Do we try it again? What are we done today? What, what next? Right, and there's like this other magical third option that you didn't mention. I love it. What is it? Drugs. <laughs> Monique, get, this is what them. I tell people. This is what I say. It's like, if you can't, get through this without really unacceptable levels of distress, you got to ask for drugs. Like I am so into, I'm just, this is what I famously say, which is fun, which is really half a joke, but not really. I just say, I love drugs. Like just please drugs for everybody. A hundred percent. Come on, give them some meds. And I'm going to reel back even from what you said, which is an unacceptable level of distress, ask for drugs. I'm going to reel back a little bit from that and even say, if I anticipate that's exactly right, a level of distress, I'm going to proactively administer medications that I know reduce stress. Why? Because almost every kind of veterinary care, except for a few very small emergencies, which you and I have both experienced intermittently with our own pets, are things that need to be done serially. We are going to do these things more than once. 
Yes. And you know what happens when I expect, when I accept mild distress. So I'm going to take you in for your checkup and vaccines. It's going to be okay. Your body language looks okay. It's like under my threshold of distress. That's fine. Like you're in mild distress. You're licking your lips and you're yawning and you have a little bit of avoidance and you're kind of taking food, but maybe not. And that maybe felt okay for me. Like that was where I decided where the line was going to be for that pet on that day. And then one year later, when my pet is one year older and they haven't been to the vet for a year, and then I go in and it's for a checkup and vaccines, what's going to happen? And either they will be better, they will be the same, or they will be more distressed. Those are the options, right? Mm -hmm. And that depends a lot on genetics and it depends a lot on resilience and it depends some on training, but really learning history. Yeah. And fear is really powerful emotion and it makes us remember things yeah, so that we, we don't, don't die that's right, right? so that you this don't is, die is, your brain is like that on purpose yeah. it yeah. is uber functional this is a yeah. very functional system that we have it keeps us alive uh it keeps pets alive too we have to remember that if we trigger that fear system if we trigger that fear response even if it feels mild we are at risk for worsening fear and they're the same conditions in the future and yeah. that means that I have a pretty low tolerance for distress in animals that I'm working with, because I know that the thing that I do today is going to influence the animal's ability to do it tomorrow. And I want to take care of them for their whole life. Like, I don't want it to be one and done, and then they switch vets, and then one and done, and they switch vets, because that's also traumatic for everyone. And it's traumatic for the owner. And they might not even pick up the phone and go to the vet, right. because it was upsetting for them, right? So uh, drugs, man. Huge believer, give them in advance. If you think that there may, may be distress, test them at home before yeah, you get them, I, before you go to the vet. I don't know if you're comfortable saying. Oh, 100%. We can talk about which ones. Yeah. Well, I would like you to, and here's why. Um, folks, number one, don't know what to ask for. Number two, don't know that there's certainly a, a range of things that we can do here. I'm a huge fan of a pre-med ritual before we go in for everything. 100%. Anytime you're going to the vet, I want you on drugs that reduce your stress about the vet. Full disclosure, I also take drugs to go to the doctor. Fair. And, he, <laughs> and, and here's what I'm going to tell you. Giving your animal medication to improve their emotional state is cooperative care. Say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> Giving your animal medication to improve their emotional state counts as cooperative care. It absolutely does. And it's just also, it's just a kindness. Like it's just a, I love you. And this is how I am going to help you do better through this. Absolutely. For sure. And then we can escalate all the way to, you know, injectable sedatives. Like we, I mean, depending on what it is that we need to get done. I mean, I've got a dog that, if he needs anything beyond like a really basic exam and vaccines, we're talking about, we need to have a conversation about an injectable because otherwise it's just going to be too hard for him. And then we're really not going to be able to walk in the door next time. Exactly. And you know what? That's cooperative too. Yeah. Like, oh, we have to make room for the emotional needs of the animal. And that's going to be different for every animal on the day. And it's okay. It's actually even good. You know, I encourage pet owners to agree to sedation early and often because you're preventing problems later. And also it shortens the time that they're there. It shortens the number of people that have to be involved to complete a procedure. 
uh, all of these things are improved through giving appropriate sedation when it is indicated and when it's safe to do so. Uh, there are very few situations where it is safer to manually restrain an animal than it is safer to sedate them. Very few. Yeah. And I think that that I, number one thing, again, that's in those early conversations that you have while you are deciding if this is the vet for you. 100% agree. Veterinarians who, because I've certainly met, heard of, et cetera, talk to veterinarians who are resistant to, to these ideas. And I want a vet team that is fully on board with really holding that emotional state of my animal in very high importance throughout everything that we do. Perfect. And one of the things that we can really do as clients is to communicate that, like you said, on the front end. And uh, I think it's a little bit vague when we say communicate that on front end or like have that conversation, because I don't know that some of the listeners would even know what that conversation looks like. Like, I think that we're, we're talking to each other because we've like done this before, but uh, you know, if I have if I'm going in as a pet owner, particularly now with COVID, so many places are still curbside and this kind of thing. And so it's like, hand over your pet and hope for the best. When we're the pet owner and we're talking to the vet team, say, you know, if he's showing any distress or avoidance, it is completely okay with me. And I would like it if you would stop what you're doing and then let's make a new plan. Your vet team will love you. Most clients do not feel that way. (laughs) And so most clients are like, I, you need to get this done. I brought them here. This is your job. You need to get this done. So if you aren't that person, you really need to express that you're not that person. Correct. Because the veterinary team's expectation is going to be that average, that every client is similar to an average client that they interact with on a daily basis. And those clients generally don't have even the knowledge that something like emotional welfare at the vet exists on a cognitive level, like they have it on an emotional level because they feel the distress from their pet when they go, but they cognitively probably don't even know that there are other options. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that vets are used to dealing with on their regular basis. And then when they do even approach a client and say, oh, you know, I think it's best if we give these medications and here's why, there's a lot of pushback there, really common really, really common. So opening up the door to that by having the conversation with the vet or the vet staff at the beginning of the appointment, hey, let's try and do these things. And if my pet looks upset, like, let's go ahead and give medication to solve that. Mm -hmm. will really just empower everybody to have a good experience. Yes. So let's talk about some specific drugs just to help people to have the conversation because you know, what I will do when I'm speaking to a new vet situation is say, hey, it's typical for Iggy to be on both trazodone and gabapentin before she comes in. I give it to her at this time. Is that okay with you guys? A hundred percent. They've all been like, oh yes. Like not only is that okay, that is great. We are so excited about this. Like and when I can open that door and, and speak to them like that, it goes easier for me than other times that I've had to say, I'd like a medication to make my dog feel a little bit, a little bit better about this. That is a harder conversation to have. So just talk about, I do you have a favorite protocol. What can people ask their vets for? 
So I wouldn't say that I have a favorite protocol, but I have a few that we, you know, lean on pretty regularly. <clears throat> the one that you mentioned about trazodone and gabapentin is sort of becoming a daily driver in a lot of veterinary mm-hmm. practices anymore. Like the word has really gotten out about that. It is very appropriate for a lot of pets. It's super safe. Even if they have underlying medical conditions, it plays nicely with other medications they might be taking. Yeah. So that is often a nice starting point for a lot of different animals. Oftentimes we might end up add in a benzodiazepine with one of those if it is appropriate for that individual pet. So that would be things like if uh, if we're humans and we're thinking about that, we would be thinking about like Xanax would be right. a, a, a you know name of a benzodiazepine that people find to be uh, commonly exposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> there are also supplements that oftentimes we will incorporate with that. So things like zilkine, which is alpha-casozapine, it has no drug interactions with other things. It's love very- Zilkine. Um, love zilkine. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> we love it. Yes. And it and it also does not have the same impact on serotonin as some of the other supplements do. Right. right. And so the safety profile for it and for drug interaction is a little bit improved compared to some of the other supplements that are available. Sometimes if we have an animal that has a very high level of kinetic energy, like they move a lot, is their expression of their stress, we might add in something specifically like melatonin, something that causes somnolence where they feel sleepy. Yes. And like just calm down the motor patterns a little bit. Let's just slow everything down a little bit. Uh, so those are some of the things that we very commonly will use. Uh, we also really, I'm a big believer in alpha twos. So that would be things like uh, clonidine, dexmedetomidine. Yeah. The beauty of alpha twos is that they are short acting, they work quickly and they are reversible. Benzos are also reversible, which is something that a lot of people are not aware of, but. Excellent. I. Alpha twos are great, but you need to be really aware of the cardiac safety profile with those. Yes, so sure. if an animal has a heart murmur, underlying metal, like there are some animals for which that is not really not appropriate. Uh, one thing that people can ask their vets about if they want to open up a conversation that might be new for the vet too, is that specifically dexmedetomidine, which is alpha two, uh, it is dextomator would be like the most common brand name of that. If we have larger dogs, that injectable preparation can be given orally. Mm-hmm. It can be given on the gums or inside the cheek pouch and it's absorbed readily that way. But a lot of veterinary teams don't know that. So I'm Am trying I, to push the word out about that one. Am I correct in thinking that that is what the brand name Saleo is? You the- are correct in thinking that the, yes. Yes. That is the active ingredient in Saleo. Okay. The concentration, yeah. so how strong it is, is way less in Saleo versus if we were right. trying to achieve something for a very stressed pet for a vet visit, which is why we will sometimes make our own preparation using the injectable form. Because just for anybody who's not familiar, Saleo is a is for at-home use, specifically for noise, fe- phobia, fears, things like that. I love it for noise events like 4th of July, things like that. But it's a much lower dose for what you would be giving at home versus what would be given in the veterinary clinic. Correct. Okay. Uh, And that same medicine is one of the most common things you were mentioning injections of sedatives before. That's Mm -hmm. one of the most common things that would be incorporated into the injectable part. So we can kind of split that part out, give it by a less invasive route, 
get them started and more prepared for their injection moving forward. Uh, Our practice treats a lot of patients who are referred to us because they've been like, quote, fired and quote from other practices as being unsafe to handle. So we do a lot of medicating and sedating and people are always welcome to, if you have veterinary professionals who want more information about that, they're always welcome to contact me and I can point them in the right direction. Love it. Absolutely. We'll be doing that. So (laughs) something I think is important to talk about is when, like, if you, let's say you've got this dog, that's beautifully trained to do um, kind of any of those basics, an exam, a vaccine, blood draw, which we love that because like you said, you got to do it all the time, like once, twice a year minimum. So it's nice to have them trained for it. When are you actually deploying those trained behaviors? And then versus, do you have like a just kind of damage control routine for what else might show up as things do? Like dog has to have an MRI and it's COVID and, or, or it's not COVID, but you know, things that you aren't going to have prepared them for necessarily with your specific training procedures but here we are now it has to be done. I think I understand the question. So I know I, I completely sure. rambled. This is not your fault. I, <laughs> you're the, you're a fantastic guest because you're like, let me clarify what Sarah just rambled about for one very long run on sentence. <laughs> I didn't really mean it that way. I'm just like, let me make sure I understand. So you're asking, when are we going to deploy trained behaviors and when are we not going to, going to deploy trained behaviors? I feel like it's the distillation down. Well, of the and kind of, it's, yes, it's a little muddy because we are talking about acceptance of restraint as training and things like that, right? It is all yes. training. Like what isn't training? Are there situations where you're, you know your training hasn't prepared you for this? And then what are we going to do? Or like maybe you do have the cooperative behavior, but you're not sure it's going to hold up under this condition. So now what do we do? Did I make it worse? (laughs) No, you didn't make it worse, but we already had that conversation. The answer to that question is drugs. The answer to that question is drugs. So anytime, and I mean, I I I really mean it. Like I really, I will. Is, and people, I think people push on it because I think people are resistant to medicating the dog if Eh, you could hold them down and do it. It'll take two seconds. Like, you know what I mean? Because they're not recognizing potentially the emotional impact that you're having in those two seconds. Also, it's never actually going to be two seconds, but. No, it's two seconds followed by a really strong reaction. We didn't get it done. And now we have to go to drugs. Yeah. So just go to the drugs first, y'all. If I'm not sure, I always err on the side of medication because just like I can treat physical changes. So like if somebody brings me their dog and say the dog's peeing 10 times an hour, I'm like, great. So we do your analysis. Great. So the veterinarian looks at it and says, oh, you have a bacterial urinary tract infection. What are we going to do about that? Well, here are some antibiotics, mm-hmm. which are great for killing bacteria in the urinary tract. Please take them for two weeks, give them to your dog, and then bring me back some pee. End of story. I don't think that has to be different from you bring me your dog. It needs an x-ray of its foot. And I say, that's great. Your dog needs an x-ray of its foot. I'm going to give some medication that will immobilize the dog temporarily so that I get awesome x-rays of the foot and he won't remember a thing. And then we're going to send you home with a bandage for two weeks and it'll be all done. 
versus if you come to me and say your dog's peeing 10 times an hour and I say, that's great. Here's a special food and some cranberry tablets. And I'd like you to add some um, chicken broth to his food to increase his water intake. And then also here's a probiotic because that helps with the biofilm of the bladder. I want you to take all this home and try it for a couple of weeks. And then you let me know. And if it's still a problem, then I'll be happy to give you some antibiotics. That's the same thing, which sounds ludicrous, right? I mean, does that sound- oh, I'm just so excited about this conversation, Monique, because this is how I felt for so long is that why are we screwing around? Like, can we just, yes, if the dog needs an x-ray. I'm going to treat emotion. I'm going to create treat fear, anxiety, and stress with the same amount of care that I'm going to treat a bacterial infection. I'm going to pick the thing that I think is going to be the best on that day and that moment. I'm going to use my first best line of defense against fear, anxiety, and stress, just as I am with any medical condition. Because it's the same. Hint, it's the same. Your mind- Health is health is health. Right. Health is health is health. Your mental health and your physical health are not two things. Correct. Your health is one thing and your emotions are part of that. Right. Absolutely. I wonder if your veterinary clinic that you work at could just pretend I'm a dog, take care of all of my medical procedures. Probably not. (laughs) You would be surprised the frequency with which I received that question. (laughs) But so your question was, at what point do we say, let's do specific behaviors? You know, whether it's trained for restraint, what amount of restraint am I going to lay going to lean on how deeply I think that kind of maybe the underlying question is how deeply am I going to lean on the threshold that my animal has for a specific set of behaviors for a specific day like that's I think what I'm getting from the question is yeah the question is essentially I've got these behaviors they're trained they look fantastic I recognize that if we use the behavior and you know, needles don't feel good. These things don't feel good. Like you are putting a lot of pressure on your behaviors that you have trained when you do this stuff. When do we choose? When is that worthwhile? When do we choose to put that pressure on our behaviors? And when do we not? So for me, for something that is not a medical urgency, right? So we're talking about vaccines, blood draws, this kind of thing. We're not, or, or, you know, routine x-rays. We're not talking about something where like, my dog just had emergency spinal cord surgery nine weeks ago. We're not talking about that, right? We're talking about stuff that I can control, stuff that I can hit the pause button on if I need to, and it's not a not going to cause a physical damage to the pet, right? Just, okay. That's our caveat, what we're talking about. When I'm going to lean on behaviors is when I know that I can ask my animal the question, are you ready? And they know that they can tell me yes or no, and they know how. Okay. So you were talking about consent earlier. Yep, that's what that and is. And my animal... Can my animal opt in and say, I'm ready? And do they know how to opt out in a way that is like rational and nonviolent and still communication and not just reactionary? Because because it needs to be at the communication level. Like, can they still be in the executive functioning part of the brain? Yeah, they're not trying to escape you. They're not trying to, they're not going into escape avoidance mode. They're saying no. Correct. There is or say difference. not ready, you know, I, they're I have issues now. with yes and they're no. Saying, they're saying, they're exactly. right, they're saying not right now. They're saying, sometimes I say, I don't know that the dog's saying no, but he is saying I can't. Exactly. Right. I, like, I like that so much better because I think that 
we can exclude a really large subset of pet owners and trainers if we tell them that dogs are allowed to say no. And I don't want to exclude those people because I want them to still have a good experience at the vet. Even if we don't train the same way, I still want their vet experience to feel the same way. So that is what took me away from the like, yes, no dichotomy about consent versus ready or not ready or now and not now. Sure. Okay. Because that opens the door for future success. And I feel like if we say dog says no, no is kind of a complete sentence with a period at the end. And I don't think that the conversation between me and an animal is ever that, you know, definite. Hopefully I never make them slam the door on me that much. So I want it to feel more like fluid, ready, not ready, ready, not ready, ready for this. Oh, I'm not quite ready for that. And so in order to have that conversation, we have to install something that the animal can use as a cue for us to show us that they are ready and a cue for us that they can show us that we are not ready. This is where the ethics of cooperative care training comes into play a little bit because Uh, what, what do I do to the pet to teach them to give me a not ready signal? Yeah. Right. Okay. It's tough because really interesting, right? Because if it never happens, they don't know how, then they don't actually have the language with you. And, and then all they have is avoidance, which is driven by an emotion that I'm trying really hard not to prompt the downside to that, which I consider to be an upside in the long term, but the momentary downside to that is I do have to prompt that emotion of, I don't want you to do this a few times to show them how to opt out in a way that is rational. I need to be able to show them that they can tell me to stop that they can hit the pause button. But interestingly, or maybe interesting to some, not to you because you've done a lot of this, but as soon as you show them that they can get you to stop, they will let you do. I know. As soon as you tell someone that they can say no to something, they will feel much more free to say yes. Animals are no different. They do not have verbal language the same way that we do, but they can (sighs) still... They, they respond in the same way to having some amount of autonomy and agency about what we do to their body. They do. And it's, it, people are afraid of giving them this little bit of power a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to convince them that no, when you do, they're really, they're just going to agree so much more often to what they will that you're asking it's something I've observed you've obviously observed it I mean I've observed it in sports like if you tell them you don't have to play this game with me I would like you to and I'll make it worth your while if you want to I mean they just start to be more so much more willing to engage and put themselves kind of on the line like that I mean my dogs tend to be like really insane about wanting to do their sports and it's not really a that's not that big of a thing but a lot of my clients dogs I mean the dog has been like kind of gently coerced lightly coerced like for for so long that they don't know that there is another option and so then all they've got is sniffing right refusal to move off the start line things like that that's what you're talking about, not wanting to prompt those big neon signs of I'm opting out. But instead, Perfect. if the dog can, if the dog can just say, you know, this is my very clear signal to you that I'm not ready yet. How, what a, what a huge, powerful thing to have between the two of you. And everybody teaches, agree. And everybody teaches it a little bit differently for me. Mm-hmm. If I'm teaching how to tell me you're ready or not ready, it's going to be also different from every pet. 
And it's also going to be unique to the procedure. So for instance, if I present my two hands, you know, imagine that I'm holding a loaf of bread. One, mm -hmm. Each end of the loaf of bread is in each of my palms and there's a loaf of bread in the middle. So I'm reaching out with two hands and there's an empty space there where the mm -hmm. loaf of bread would be. Mm -hmm. I'm offering them the option. Would you like to opt in for head? Okay. I'm making a space. Your head goes in here. If you're ready, you can put your head in there. If you're not ready, you don't have to put your head in there. Yeah. That's different from I'm dropping down. I have my nail clippers in one hand and your mat in the other hand. And I have the nail clippers and show them to you. And I drop your mat and you can come onto the mat to tell me you're ready. And you can move off of the mat to tell me that you're not. Yes. So, cause I think that sometimes people get a little bit pigeonholed with cooperative care and say, okay, well, it has to be the station and the station has to be something that I can take with me everywhere. Like there's only one way to opt in or opt out, or there's only one way to be ready or no longer ready. And I uh, think that there's a lot of finesse that can be added. And some of it is even sort of intuitive. Like once the dogs understand the idea of being ready yes, and not ready and the, and the, you know, the context of here are my hands and here are the things that we're doing, mm -hmm. they will get that this is about handling as a general concept. I I swear to you, they can understand that. They can. And also just the general concept of when this is the way you talk to them always, then it's so much easier for them to understand in a new context. Certainly. If I want to pat my dog, I offer my hand and they can come up to be petted yeah. or they cannot come up to be petted. And if they don't right. come to me, I'm not going to pursue them to pet them. Right. That's a very basic consent point, right? Yeah. I think that that consent point is not always accessible to every pet owner. I think there are plenty of pet owners who continue to pursue the dog so they can pick it up so that they can pet it. And little things like that actually contribute to difficulty with handling for things like grooming absolutely. and pecking. Yeah, absolutely. You know, cer certainly that's true. So looping all the way back to how do I train ready and not ready, I'll give them some kind of gestural cue or some kind of invitation that most animals, most dogs probably have seen at home. Like I might present my hand to them. And if they look like they are making some progress towards me, then I will reward for that. I'm like, oh, well, that means that you get food. That's great. Mm -hmm. If they do not progress towards me, I will remove my hands and toss a piece of food the other direction. And I will reward for that. You reward for both. You reward for yes. And you reward for no, because rational thinking is the thing that I want. I want to keep your brain in that good thinking space where you're thinking about yes. And you're thinking about no, whether you're rather than thinking about yes and oh my god don't touch me yeah so when I'm training my yes and no are my ready and not ready I accept really small indications that the animal might be not ready and I try to keep the indications very minute so it might be a lean away it might be a look away it might be a failure to engage and I'm going to reset that loop and ask the question again by tossing a piece of food or whatever or their toy or whatever away. I try really hard to use food when I'm doing cooperative care because it is so much easier. Like toys are a thing, but no, I always food. food. food I can, so it's easy. Yeah. Well, and toys do bring just a whole other ball of wax to the table. I mean, the honestly. amount of foundation behaviors that need to be trained to proficiency for them yes. to be able yeah. to use toys for a form of reinforcement for cooperative care is really deep and long and big and a separate project that many people would struggle with getting just yeah. that project done. Sure. And then there's arousal levels that get prompted when we start introducing toys. Like I'm trying to usually turn the arousal knob down. Toys yeah, don't usually do I that. Worry sometimes, Monique. And I wonder if you I've experienced this. I worry about too 
presenting a reinforcer that my dog would walk through fire for like I don't actually want oh, you do to that. be willing to die for this because if you're willing to die for this then you aren't going to feel like you can say no correct because no I think that bad. any sufficiently high value item from the perspective from the perspective of the animal can be coercive yes. you know I think that's something that we definitely agree on I usually use low and medium value food mm -hmm. when I am doing training and then the, but if I'm going to do the real thing so I'm training 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 and then I'm going to actually put in your microchip or I'm going to actually do your injection and I have a 14 week old puppy right now so I'm in the thick of needing to actually do things very regularly yes. with a yeah. super naive learner right yeah. So I will have my low and medium value things and we do those for practice and I reserve an exceptionally high value thing that they get immediately after the real needle. Which that just comes down to ratio of reward for appropriate ratio of effort. Like if something is really tough, you should get a really big payout. The difference is that you didn't present it, like you didn't say check out this filet mignon now you nope. have to hold still now you have to do that it's not like that no, you're sure. literally just presenting it after you do the really hard thing absolutely yeah absolutely and the and you know we were talking about minute indications of discomfort lean away look away yeah. failure yeah. to engage if i'm using something really high value i'm going to mask all of those all of those will become invisible they're yeah. going to completely be just like i'm making it totally invisible because their motivation to access whatever it is I'm offering is going to override subtle body language cues of aversion. Absolutely. Really important. Um, please do not smear peanut butter on your head on ceramic <laughs> and cut your dog's toenails because I will jump off a cliff. Like, please stop doing that. Oh, it's so cringy. Every time I see it, I'm like, please stop. Please. I know. Please no. <laughs> That being said, I mean, I will tell you that I do consider the use of distractions to be cooperative under the right conditions. The use yeah, of desensitization and counter conditioning is cooperative. The use of opera is cooperative. All that stuff is cooperation if I am sensitive to the needs of the animal in that moment. And that's where the judgment calls yeah. come in. Totally, because I will also, like, I, yeah. uh, especially like you were saying, a naive learner, like little baby puppy, if we, if I can, if you can just be having a grand old time on a licky mat while I get some things done and I'm paying attention and I'm watching you and I'm watching, you know, to see how this is going for you. Yes. I don't see that to be problematic. We just need to be, we always need to be paying attention to what's happening in front of us. Completely, completely agree. You know, if I present something like a lick mat or I oftentimes will use, I mean, it's so boring kibble, but you know, it's, I touch, you get one, I touch, you get one, I touch a little bit longer, you get two, I touch a little bit longer, you get three, I start touching you, I lay out 10 in a line, and I give you an injection, right, because I know that I'm going to need more time, and you're naive, and you don't know how to hold still, but if I do that once, and when I touch you, I feel your skin flex under my fingers, or you start to reach for the food, and you open your mouth, and you pause for a split second before you eat that piece of food, those are signs to me that distractions is not appropriate for that particular animal, but that's how small the signs are. So we really, like you said, we have to watch. I mean, we have to really, really pay close attention for tiny signals from the animal that a distraction is not appropriate. That to be said, there are many animals who are tolerant to handling yeah. and they are tolerant to care and it's not actually scary for them. And all we have to do is maintain a non-response 
Like mm-hmm. all we have to do is maintain the okay feeling. We aren't trying to reverse negative feelings. We aren't trying to reverse fear. We aren't trying to re- do emotional replacement yeah. or train elaborate behaviors. All we need to do is have you continue to not care and maybe like it. Yeah. That actually represents a huge majority of the pets that I work with. Wow. I mean, and how awesome, like I have my first dog who's kind of in that boat, it's Raya. And I just, what a lovely project versus the repair side of things. For sure. Yeah, for sure. But we're still obligated to try and maintain that stuff. And I think that that's a really, that's something that we really miss out on, especially in the veterinary field, people will interact with an animal that's easy to interact with. And we don't pay them in any way for being easy. Yeah. We should always we should always pay for, pay them for being easy because that will maintain easy that makes easy functional for everyone uh, absolutely so I think if you can touch just briefly I mean I just said that again briefly um just touch <laughs> on one little thing and then we'll kind of wrap up when stuff is going to happen I mean obviously we talked drugs right so the because I do get this question a lot when it is something that you simply haven't prepared the dog for, and it is maybe urgent. Yeah. Then the preparedness, like your preparedness actions are to ask for drugs, yes. to tell them, you know, if, if it's really supremely urgent, there may be situations where stopping isn't actually Correct. on the table. Yes. Are there ways to prepare our dogs at all for these kind of emergency situations? You know, I think that the basic preparedness that we do about restraint and about accepting and being comfortable with things that are unexpected is kind of the best that we can do because none of us can anticipate every kind of emergency that happens in life and neither, and we can't prepare them for every emergency that might happen to them, but having them be comfortable with, can a, can I restrain you? Can a stranger restrain you? Like, don't be afraid to approach things like restraint, which we talked about all the way back in the beginning, because that's going to be the thing that most of them find distressing. And don't use your cues if it is an emergency. Please, please. Big do, deal. Big deal. Don't do not just don't, don't. use your behaviors. Just, don't no. Just yeah. Go into emergency mode. If your dog can eat, like throw a throw an entire chicken breast into the dog's mouth, get a needle into the dog, and go. You know, everything is off the table when it is an emergency situation, Mm -hmm. except protecting the trust that's between you and your dog and protecting your trained behaviors. Do not ask for something that your animal is highly motivated to opt into under ordinary circumstances when they are in pain, when they are uncomfortable, when they are sick, and when you cannot add, when you cannot respect a not ready signal. So once I've taught ready and not ready, I do not ask questions that I cannot accept both of those answers for. So if I ask you, are you ready? And you tell me no, and I can't take no because it's an urgent scenario. That was my bad. I should not have asked you. And I know that this is something that you subscribe to in your training as well from being familiar with for a long time. Don't ask questions you can't accept every answer for. Right. Which is different from not asking questions you don't want the answer to. (laughs) Totally different, but totally different. If this is happening right now, because this is an emergency, regardless, I am not going to ask you, I'm going to lean on, hopefully be able to lean on 
all the things that we've done. Yep. Um, I'm going to lean on drugs <laughs> and yes, we're going to do what we can do essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And after, and after the fact, if we have an urgent event like that, and then later on the pet's been restored to health, I'm probably going to make some reparation there too. And I'm going to go back to my trained behaviors and I'm going to make sure that they're nice and robust and that everything still looks good. Uh, just to be sure that I haven't done any long-term damage. I absolutely am going through a lot of reparation right now for Iggy having been hospitalized a few months ago. It was, and she was with a great hospital, but we, it's just too much. And she, it's, you know, it's always been fragile for her anyway. Like she doesn't like any of this stuff. Our trust in our relationship has carried us through in a, in a big way. And then having to hand her over because of curbside and it being an emergency um, really kind of did a number on on our stuff but that reparation is worthwhile and you do it and I'm happy to say her last like regular vet exam I she was cute I feel like she was relieved that I didn't leave her like I took her in I stayed with her I held her for the blood draw and then at the end she was looking at me like wait you're not gonna leave me here oh Aww. Oh, it's okay. And I'm like, oh, baby. <laughs> That's so sweet. That's so um, sweet. So Monique, this has just been such a fantastic, interesting conversation. I know people are going to want to know more. I know you've got a second edition of the textbook that you co-wrote coming out. So talk about that. Talk about where they can find you. All of that. Perfect. Uh, you can find me through my website, which is teachinganimals.com. You can also find our cooperative veterinary care group on Facebook, about 6,000 members now. So growing, getting bigger, getting bigger. Uh, the textbook is called Cooperative Veterinary Care. The first edition came out in 2018, authorized by myself, Monique Fairchild. Uh, I'm a VTS in behavior and also Elisa Howell, who is a fellow of VTS in behavior. The second edition will be coming out in 2023, and I'll be the sole author on that one. Awesome. Honestly, so great. So nice to talk to you. So refreshing to talk to somebody in the veterinary field doing this day in and day out about the nitty gritty and about the fact that we don't actually live in fantasy land where everything <laughs> is really cut and dried and simple and easy and all of our behaviors are going to hold up perfectly and we're never going to need drugs. Like that's not where we live. And so it was really nice to talk to somebody who recognizes that. And I just can't thank you enough for your time. Hey, I had a great time. I think it's a really important conversation to have. And uh, someday when you want to talk about training fancy behaviors, we'll talk about that separately. We'll dive into that. Soon. <laughs> Take care. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.